Welcome to the Council Podcast. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm passionate about all things in-house and I'm so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Chris Young. Chris is General Counsel at Ironclad. Ironclad is the digital contracting platform loved by modern legal teams, including me at Megaport. Prior to Ironclad, Chris was the General Counsel at GoFundMe. And before then, he had the most interesting life in public service, working for Barack Obama on the campaign, then in the White House, followed by a time at the U.S. Department of Justice. Honestly, I mean, Chris has had one fantastic career and he speaks so openly about his time as the Northern California Deputy Finance Director for Obama for America. Of course, a lot of us in-house lawyers work for companies that sell product or service that isn't directed at us as the ideal audience. For Chris, that is not the case. He is the exact ideal customer for the company that he works for. And we explore what this is like to be kind of the customer and the service provider at the same time. A really interesting dynamic that I haven't explored before. Chris's insight into working as a startup lawyer and now into a maturing scale up lawyer is so fantastic and and mirrors a lot of my own experience as well. I particularly enjoyed hearing about the values that he looks for in his team members. And uh, can I just say, it is really refreshing. Enjoy this episode with Chris Young. This episode of Council is brought to you by Markster. Markster provides dynamic trademark services to modern in-house legal teams. Current practices force in-house teams to be reactive rather than proactive limiting their ability to set their own pace of work, deadlines, and budgets. Markster empowers in-house legal teams to proactively manage timelines and meet the demands of your internal clients. Find out more at markster.com.au or reach out to Kate and the Markster team. Their contact details are in the show notes. I would also like to thank InCouncil for supporting this episode. InCouncil provides people and tech solutions for in-house legal teams. They provide you access to a high-caliber panel of sole practitioners, which does include a lot of former in-house lawyers who can help you with ad hoc matters or ongoing support. They also specialize in helping GCs select, set up and integrate the best tools and technologies. Go to incouncil.com.au to find out more. P.S. If you aren't already subscribed to InCouncil Weekly, you are missing out. I always look forward to it landing in my inbox. It is a weekly email with bite-sized insights for in-house counsel and creative legal minds. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes. Chris Young, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Mel, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to speed through a lot of stuff today. I've got an hour of your precious time. You're joining us from your Friday evening in the US. I'm Saturday morning and I want to wrap up this week for you and and get you going on to your weekend. But while I have you for this time, I know you have an incredible experience. You've had just a completely enviable career now working for, in my opinion, one of the coolest companies and legal tech companies. And I just want to draw out some of these experiences and, and see what comes up. But to start, of course, I have to ask if you had a limitless credit card, but you could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? This, this is a tough one for so many reasons. One is I try not to use credit cards. Learn that lesson back in the day, getting my first one without any like education about credit cards and learning about interest rates and all the things. So I've spent most of my adult life trying to stay away from credit cards. But I, I can tell you that today was really an amazing way to end the week at Ironclad. For the past three years, uh, I, out of our legal department, and now our team has run what's called a contract analyst program. 
And the contract analyst program is where, you know, about a dozen law students from different uh, law schools and diverse backgrounds come into Ironclad and they review hundreds and in some cases thousands of contracts of all different contract types. And they tag or identify metadata properties in these contracts and in so doing train our algorithm for our AI product, which is called Smart Import. So the AI product that we offer to our customers is actually powered by actual law students. We don't ship data overseas and have random people review things. We actually do it with law students. And this program isn't just about reviewing and analyzing contracts. It's about career development. It's about personal development. We have a group that's very vulnerable and we talk about things and do career advice. And I try to place a lot of these law students after they take the bar exam. And this morning we had one of the more inspiring end of week meetings. Every Friday at 8 a.m. we meet. But when we were opening up with each other at the end and talking, it became clear to me that a lot of these folks not only had a hard time thinking about where they're going to work after law school when those law school loan uh, payments are due, but they were even having a hard time figuring out how they might afford bar review courses. You know, some of our third year students are taking the bar this summer and, and people were open about that. And so just on the cuff answering this question, I would say if there were a store that sold bar prep courses, right? And we can think of maybe the top companies in the United States, at least, that do these bar prep courses. I would take that limitless credit card and I would buy bar review courses for every person at any law school uh, here in the U.S. that needed that course to better position themselves to pass the bar. That's how, that's how I would, I, I'd use that card, Mel. Oh, Chris, that's so wholesome. <laughs> I am quite like warm hearted right now. That's a beautiful answer. I think that is probably the most charitable answer that I've ever received. And I think that, you know, you actually you do touch on a really important topic about that access to the profession and the privilege that comes with being able to practice. And I mean, that's a that's a big topic for for another day. But thank you for highlighting that. And I couldn't agree more. I would love to give you that limitless credit card. Maybe we need to we need to hit up these these prep courses and see if there's pro bono opportunities or what what are they doing? I don't know. Yes, we should follow up on that. one. Yeah. Awesome answer. If we take you back to your origin story, starting legal practice, what was your first legal gig? And then how did you find your way in house? My first legal gig out of law school was working for a large law firm based in mm -hmm. San Francisco. At the time, it was California's largest law firm, and it's called Morrison and Forster. Uh, it's got offices all over the world. It's also known as MoFo. Oh no way! I love that. <laughs> right, right, and and it, it was it, you know, and it's still a an amazing firm. Could still be California's largest firm, and it's got a bunch of great lawyers uh, over there. So I first started my career there. And it wasn't how I thought I would start my career because, of course, I went to law school wanting to change the world like many of us did. And when I started exploring opportunities within law school, you know, what, what might I do after law school? I was actually found myself in somewhat of a precarious position because I was poised to graduate, graduate with a bunch of debt. Uh, I don't come from family with, with money. My, my parents were public school teachers, elementary school teachers. So I had to figure out a way that I could pay off this debt and then maybe afford myself the opportunity to do more public interest work in the future. And I found that at Morrison and Forrester, I might have the opportunity to have the best of both worlds. In other words, go to a law firm and, and earn a decent salary. And at the same time, take advantage of what they had touted at the time as one of the nation's uh, most active pro bono programs. And so that's where I started my legal career at Morrison and Forrester. And I remember showing up my first day, 425 Market Street in San Francisco, and going up to the 31st floor where my office was. And slowly after going through, you know, the motions of orientation for a day or two, you get your first case assignment. And I had been put on some big securities case with this partner that was relatively well known, but this, and I didn't even really know what securities were at the time. I just knew the partner was fancy. And I later learned that there was 300 other attorneys, yes, 300 other attorneys on this securities matter, and that it had been going on for like seven years. And even at the time, I thought, well, that sounds important. I didn't realize that I would just be a cog in the wheel and just grinding away on maybe document review. Well, turns out some folks took me under their wing early and said, Chris, that's going to grind you out of this firm. It's grinded everyone out of this firm. And I thought, wow, well, sign me up. I'm ready for the challenge. But as I was walking back to my office, I poked my head in this partner's office named Arturo Gonzalez. And I said, hey, man, what's up? Remember me from summer? 
Now Arturo was first generation American. His, his parents had immigrated over here from Mexico and he was a hustler. And he was from Sacramento like I'm from. And he hustled his way from UC Davis Law School all the way out to Harvard by getting some press around the fact that he drove his Volkswagen Bug with Harvard or bus sign on the back. And that little bit of PR he got, he brought it into Harvard and convinced them to let him in. Anyway, Arturo was an inspiring guy. He was co-chair or would be co-chair in the future of litigation at the firm. I poked my head in, hey man, what's up? Hey, what's up, Chris, good to see you. Uh, he said, what's, you know, what's going on? I said, well, I just got my first case, a securities case. He's like, hmm. And he looked at me, he said, you wanna sue the governor with me? And I said, wait, what? Sue the governor? He said, yeah, you want to sue the state of California with me? I said, yeah, let's sue him. About what? <laughs> and he said, sit down. And he proceeded to tell me about this case where just the year before the firm had settled a billion dollar case with the state of California and throughout litigation and settlement had California had essentially admitted that it had not upheld the constitutional mandate of providing equal schools and an equal education to all Californians. That is in our state constitution. And yet we had learned in this litigation uh, and upon settlement, and the point we were trying to make is that if you are a black or brown or any other student in a low socioeconomic area, there's a high likelihood that your school facilities were terrible, that your textbooks were out of date, and that your teachers weren't even credentialed to teach the subject matter that they were charged with teaching. And so we looked at all of the data and found that we weren't treating all students, all schools equally. And that case had just been settled before I joined the firm. I think it was called Williams versus the State of California. So right on the heels of that settlement, however, it seemed to make no sense that California, the state, was poised to implement the diploma penalty for this standardized test called the California High School Exit Exam. Now this exit exam applied to all seniors in California and it tested you on math and tested you on English. And you had to pass that test to get your diploma and this was going to be the first year that you didn't get your diploma if you didn't pass. Now we thought and Arturo thought this was insane because the state had just admitted that it wasn't treating students equally. And now it was applying a one-size-fits-all test to students regardless of how they fared at their schools from a grade standpoint. It also created effectively an English-only diploma in the state of California. So we started off and I was removed from that securities case, joined Arturo, and I traveled up and down the state collecting and interviewing 10 class representatives. Seniors who had done really well, football stars, dancers, a mathematician who didn't speak English well. They had all were poised to graduate, had done well in school, but couldn't pass that test. We gathered 10 class representatives to represent, at the time, 100,000 seniors in the state of California. And Mel, we litigated the heck out of that case, toe-to-toe -to -toe with the governor, the state of California, the superintendent of public instruction. I didn't mean to spend so much time on my first gig, because there's many others that will follow, but that's the first gig and how I found my way into the profession generally. Oh my gosh, you have to tell me how it ended. Well, it ended, here's how it ended. That was in, and I'll date myself a bit, it ended in 2006 in terms of us going to court on an emergency writ and getting the court to try to freeze the diploma penalty, right, through an injunction. And then we went straight up to the Court of Appeals on an emergency writ and uh, litigated it there. By the time it had been litigated, seniors had already left high school and there was a big question on whether they would get their diploma or not. And it turned out we didn't prevail completely at that time. So we ended up losing uh, the case at that time. But the fight continued because now we brought in a lobbying effort to try to change this law from within Sacramento, within the legislature. Fast forward to, I think about five years ago, six years ago, I saw a headline in the news that California had completely suspended the test and I texted Arturo after having not talked to him for a couple of years and I said, hey, I guess the test is finally gone. So that's, that's how it ended. But the most beautiful part of the process was really realizing the power of being an attorney, of being able to take this education uh, that some of us are still paying for, including me, and applying it to an issue or issues that we care deeply about and being able to affect change. Because while we didn't win that case, Mel, we still inspired students to go out and fight for themselves. And many of our students, all of our class representatives, ended up getting their diplomas because we put them in remediation programs and they continued. We negotiated with the government so that they would actually provide an extra year for students, English language learners, right, to get up and to retake the test. But it was really the inspiration and the process, right, that I think was so meaningful. And some of our students actually went off 
to go and study law themselves way later in their, their lives. So all in all, it was a win. Even though we lost the battle, we won the war. What an incredible an introduction to your legal career and actually doing something that matters. I can, I can hear that passion with which you recount that time. And as you say, what an exceptional way to, to learn the value of the, the skills that, that we have. I, I'm blown away by that. And I know that that was not the, the end. It was the beginning of your, your life in the public space and working for change. So I, I kind of want to lead you along. And I know there's a lot in that. And I'm, I'm so curious around how you've made that journey and found your way in-house. How, how did that happen? Oof, it, it is a windy journey. And I, I mean, it really is. And it really started at Morrison and Forrester. You know, I think a lot of us go to law school, right? And we have a pretty good idea of what we want to do, or we think we do. And when we're at law school, at least in the United States, they usually present to you maybe three paths, right? They present to you, hey, you can go to a law firm. You can go do public interest work. Uh, you can go into the government. And it, it is rare that law students are encouraged to think outside of the box about their career. It seems rare for law students to be encouraged to think about how they can apply their legal education, even in other fields. So when I was at Morrison and Forrester, I was locked in to my path. I knew what my path was going to be, Mel. I was going to Morrison and Forrester for two years. Then I was going to clerk for a specific federal district court judge. Okay. Then I was going to go back to Morrison and or then I was going to go be a U.S. attorney, either in the Northern District of California or the Southern District of New York. And I would do that for five to six years getting trial experience. After being a U.S. attorney, I was going to go back to Morrison and Forrester's of counsel and then make my way to partner two years after being of counsel, live happily ever after, three bedroom, two bath house, white picket fence, two children, and just rich as you don't even know, right? Might even have a, might even, might even wear a pocket watch with a chain and just walk around and like, hey, I'm a partner. You know what I mean? And, and, that, and, and, I was, and I was doing that. That's what I was going to do. And so Mel, you know, when I'm at this firm, you know, I felt the power of being able to take this legal education and apply it to something great, something that wasn't the bread and butter of a corporate firm. And so after that pro bono case, I actually got involved in an elder abuse case for a large insurance company. And that was pretty rough on me, right? After trying to save the world. And at the same time, I had this interesting opportunity to join a friend of mine, uh, who I think a lot of us will know. I sat next to at Morrison and Forrester, a friend of mine who I met out of college. And he at the time was the first black special assistant attorney general in the history of California and worked for an AG named Bill Lockyer. His name's Tony West, and he was working in Sacramento at the time I was working as a Senate fellow before going to law school. And that's when we met. Well, when I came out of law school, of course, I went over to Morrison and Forrester, where Tony had uh, joined as of counsel and later partner, and I sat right next to him. He was to my right, and to my left was a woman named Mame Awunsi Mensa, who is now our only black woman who's an active federal district court judge in the state of California. But that's where it all started. And at this firm, Tony, who, whose sister-in-law at the time had just run for DA of San Francisco and won against all odds. You know, Tony was a little bit involved in politics. His sister-in-law is our vice president, Kamala Harris. And Tony and I decided one night to go to an exploratory committee meeting for Barack Obama running for president. And when people run for president, you often pull together what's called an exploratory committee. It's a committee and it's a fundraising opportunity to get your name out there, to get the buzz going, but having not yet committed to running for office. So Barack, every year he would go to Hawaii with the family his home. And, and this year, right before he went, he had a conference call with a few of us on his exploratory committee. We had all maxed out to his campaign. We we're among the first max out donors. It was the first check I ever wrote to a candidate for $2,300, which even at a firm at the time was a ton of money. And a few of us gathered in the living room of a guy named John Ruse, who later went on to be our uh, ambassador to Japan. And we were on a speakerphone, and I have this picture of all of us gathered around the speakerphone, and Barack's in, hey, everybody, Michelle and I, you know, we're heading out to Hawaii. We're going to talk as a family, really give this thing some thought, appreciate your support. We'll come back and let you know what our decision is about whether I'll run for president. And of course, he came back, and he, on February 10th, 2007, in Springfield, Illinois, 15 years ago, just a couple days ago, actually, Tony West, Kamala Harris, her sister Maya Harris, and a few other folks 
London Breed, actually, our San Francisco mayor. We all went and we stood in the front of Barack's announcement speech in Springfield, Illinois. He had known Kamala from when he ran for, for Senate and came to San Francisco for a fundraiser. And they just connect. Two stars can see each other from across the room and their friendship has been strong ever since. It was freezing that day, right? It was freezing. And I'm a Californian, Mel. I'm a Cal. I bought shoes and I was, my feet were freezing through the soles of the shoes. And so I wasn't ready for this. Someone warned me, hey, you're going out to Chicago. I think my mom said, oh, son, bring a beanie. It was like a beanie of earmuffs. Why? And I stepped out of that plane and my ears almost fell off. It was so cold. So anyway, we're at this gathering, this historic moment. I had purchased a camera, Mel. Now this was before smartphones. So I purchased a digital camera. I did not read the directions because who does that? And I brought it to this event. And so I'm standing in the front and I'm zooming in. I'm taking all these pictures of this crazy day. And he finishes up and he goes along the rope line and he comes to our little group and he sees Kamala and he lights up and he's like, oh, it's so my God, thanks for coming. This is great. There's 17,000 people here, by the way, Mel. And he says, hey, y'all need to come down with my, my family. Come down to the basement uh, of the old Capitol building over here. And she said, well, I'm with my crew here. He said, bring them. So we all gather and we go downstairs into this little like dank kind of cavernous basement underneath the steps of the old uh, uh, old capital in in Springfield and I to my surprise there's like 10 people down there <laughs> and Barack and Michelle and the children and Barack's and, and Michelle's parents and her brother and it's me and Kamala and Tony and London a few other folks and that's when I got to know Barack Obama so I was looking at these pictures the other day, Mel. And I always wondered when I was at the law firm, you walk into these law firm offices, I'd walk into Tony's office, he had these pictures with Bill Clinton. I'm like, who gets pictures with presidents? Like, who does that? You know what I mean? Like, how, how do you even get a picture with a president I, or even a candidate or someone famous? I had no idea at the time. So I had my trusty camera there. And I said, I came, I, I walked up, looked him in his eye. How you doing, Senator? Um, Chris, pleasure to meet you. Congratulations. He said, hey, man, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a corporate lawyer. And he suddenly was just disinterested. He like, he just tuned out. He's like, oh, great. You're not doing anything for the world. I should have said, I should have said, and I just did this pro bono case, Barack. Uh, and I, I helped all these love, but I didn't. And he kind of tuned out. Cool. I said, hey, will you take a picture with me, please? He said, sure, sure. Yeah, I'll take a picture. So I handed this digital camera over to some random person who I didn't recognize or know. And they were talking with someone else because in these rooms, everyone's looking over you to see who's behind you because they want to talk to them. So he kind of took this picture and I didn't turn on the flash or have it on auto. So he handed it back, Mel, and I looked at the image and it was blurry. And we're both the same complexion. So you couldn't really tell who was who. And I'm like, wait, no, I can't post this to Facebook. I, I can't. My mom, no one's going to believe this, you know? So I thought, well, hell, I'm down here. Do I ask him for another picture? And I thought, well, uh, yeah, I'm never going to see this dude again. I'm getting my picture. He's not even going to remember me. He's about to be famous. So I walked up. I crept up. And I said, hey, uh, he said, Chris? I said, yeah. He's like, what's up, man? I was like, hey, can I get a, another picture? He said, we, we just took one. I said, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really turn out well, you know? I, I was just hoping to, you know? He's like, cool. And I said, can Kamala get one after that? He's like, yeah, perfect. And we did the Kamala Michelle. I got these pictures. They're amazing. I looked at them the other day. And so I walk, so he says, take another picture. Now, Mel, this is the crazy part. I hand it to another person. They take a picture. They cut off our foreheads. No. Oh, my gosh. So now he's meeting with, like, his best friend from law school, right? Yeah, you know what I did. You know what I did. I was like, I was like, whatever. Nah. Uh, Senator? Chris, Chris, what's up? Chris, he's now annoyed. Look, man, check it out. They cut off our foreheads. I just want one more so I can show my mother. He's like, fine. And I said, Kamala, can you please take a picture? She took a great picture of us. I posted to Facebook. It was amazing. Now, the story continues because he was flying out to Illinois or to Iowa right after that event because you get to Iowa. That's the first state you go to. And he was coming back on Sunday for an event a fundraiser uh, at a family home. I drove up that Sunday, got out of the car I was driving in or I was riding in, and at the same time a Suburban rolled up to me and I look and Michelle and Brock walked out. And so we're walking up together and he looks at me, she, she starts smiling, he's like, what's up, Chris? I was like, what's up? So we get in the elevator of this home. Yes, the home had an elevator. And we're on our way up and it's just the three of us. And he's like, you're not gonna want another picture, are you? I said, hell yeah, I'm gonna want another picture. I wore a suit tonight. And we just start laughing and we had this great picture laughing. Look. Fast forward to a week later, he came out to San Francisco for the first time. We had this event of San Francisco trial lawyers. And I stood at the end of the line of the photo line. And when he saw me, he shook his head. He's like, nah, man. 
and we're laughing. I had this picture of us laughing. He's like, hey, are we going to work together or are you just going to collect pictures of me? And I said, well, I got this clerk. I got this clerkship coming up, man. I'm working at this firm. And he said, all right. So look, Mel, I went back to the firm. I talked to my mentor there, a guy named Jack London, whose father was in politics in Arizona. And, uh, and I had an opportunity to actually work for this campaign. And I talked to Jack and I said, Jack, I have this clerkship set up for my, with my dream judge, whose name's Marty Jenkins. He was a federal district court judge in the Northern District of California, Mel, just like I had planned. Two years at MoFo, clerkship, U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, Marty, Marty was the only black active federal district court clerk at the time in the Northern District and someone I had wanted to work for a long time. Amazing career. He was actually a professional football player for a while and a sweet, kind, great person who a friend of mine had extern- who had clerked with. So I got that job. And that's a whole nother story about you never know who's going to open doors because I got that job through my dry cleaner, who was his dry cleaner, who told him that someone wanted to clerk for him. And we knew each other. And then he's like, you want to clerk for me? Well, come on. That was from our dry cleaner facilitated. I had applied twice and got rejected. But then I got hired because my dry cleaner was like, Chris wants to work for you. (laughs) So anyway, I had that locked, Mel. That was my clerkship. And it was about to start that summer. So now I was faced with this position. Do I leave this firm where I've already done well and give up this clerkship to go work for a candidate who you knew was not going to win? Hillary Clinton was going to win that one. And this partner, Jack Lennon, said, Chris, you need to do this. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We will water your plants. We will keep your office. You can take an indefinite leave. You need to do this campaign. So I did, Mel. I did. I went and met with the judge. He said, I'll be around. You can clerk with me whenever. He's since become a dear friend of mine and almost a father figure during parts of my career. He's also our first black gay, our first gay Supreme Court justice now in the state of California, Marty Jenkins. And so look, I went out to Chicago and the only job they had on the campaign was to do finance in California. Now, first of all, I'm not even good with math. Second of all, at the time I'm grown, but my mom is still paying my bills and doing my checks. I can't believe I'm admitting that, but she was. And we also grew up at our house in Sacramento with a sign prominently displayed next to the front door that said, please no peddlers or solicitors. So that growing up playing baseball, football, basketball, when you had to sell candy bars to get money for the team, my parents just bought it all because they didn't want me asking anyone for money. And here I was being presented an opportunity to ask for money for a candidate. So I accepted it and I became the first hire that was based in Northern California. The second hire I was hired with is a woman named Buffy Wicks who were having dinner with her and her husband and our children on Sunday. So many years later, she's now our assemblywoman and represents us in the legislature out here in Northern California. So I went off and I took this job and I gave up the salary. I made $48,000 a year, quickly went into debt gave it all of my life for the next year and a half, Mel. And that was the campaign and public interest chapter. And that's a whole podcast in and of itself, but it was the best years of my life. And the important part is this though, Mel, you have that well-beaten path in your mind. You know what you're gonna do next. But if you stick and adhere to that too closely, you may miss out on opportunities that can lead you to a place like where I am today and feel so proud to be. And so it was a good opportunity for me to learn that money doesn't matter as much as long as you can barely pay your bills. It's a sense of fulfillment that matters. It's your sense of purpose that matters. It's about being, it's about doing something that's much bigger than you are, being involved in something that's much bigger than you are. And to me, that was the Obama campaign. And so I went broke for the next year and a half and ended up going around the country with Barack Obama playing basketball with him on election days, raising record amounts of money uh, on his behalf uh, here in the Bay Area and beyond. And importantly, and actually most importantly, on the campaign trail, meeting the love of my love of my life, uh, my wife, Samania, who we just celebrated our 11 year wedding anniversary. So that was my political stint, Mel, in terms of being involved in the campaign politics. Now, I'll rush through the next because we got a whole podcast, but it's kind of fun to look back at these stories. Absolutely. I'm going to jump in because you make a perfect point, which I think will resonate just phenomenally for the audience, particularly some of our our younger listeners. You do have that, that beautifully laid out path. It's ingrained in you in law school. You start hearing about it really early. TV shows like Suits, you know, they contribute to that. And and we very quickly forget the reasons why we started. And if we don't have a strong sense of self, or even if we do, you know, it's at an age where you can be impressionable and it, and you can go down this, this beautifully molded out path. It's very safe and, and predictable. But, but your 
I guess that that passion and that and some incredible mentoring as well from people pushing you to pursue that the other the the road less traveled perhaps has obviously been these career defining moments and I suspect you would encourage anyone to follow that light within them that's just kind of it's just that you know that feeling that we get from time to time that like this is scary this is risky but I I can't stop thinking about it and they they're the moments that you know they light you up and you have to follow them I think more than ever phenomenal story Chris you're a master storyteller my friend I think you need the podcast (laughs) honestly I'm just happy to be a guest I'm very happy to be a guest Mel if you can't tell oh it's phenomenal I mean we know how the story kind of ends for for Mr. President I have to take you there and like you've got to tell me where you were on the the election night well there's two election nights Mel okay the the big one Okay, so the first election night I was in Waterloo, Iowa, and that's when he won his caucuses. And that's when his campaign really got legs. Election night, when he became president, I have goosebumps just thinking about it, not because it was cold, it was a little chilly. It was in Chicago, and thousands upon thousands of people were gathering. And I had the good fortune, being a campaign member, to be able to be close, upfront and personal, and behind the scenes, and to witness it all. But it was a magical night. You could feel it in the air. It was just surreal. We couldn't believe it. I mean, we just could not believe that it was happening. And I think we all felt a sense of excitement, comfort, knowing that we had a leader who really cares. You know, politics is tough. It's dirty. It's nasty. Some say there's no friends in politics. I would disagree, but it's that vibe. And this guy's got so much integrity and he's such a good person on and off the field, if you will, you know, in the, in the limelight, you know, but even behind the scenes. And he's just really an inspiring person to observe and to be around. And it was just certainly a pleasure to just be able to play a role in that whole thing. And that night, it all came together with a magical celebration uh, in Chicago. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I have goosebumps just thinking about that for you. There's those, those moments in life. I I have to skip forward a little. And I've got so much I want to ask you about Ironclad specifically. So we're going to jump through some epic things, you know, working in-house in, in other startup environments and, and finding your way into the legal tech world. I know I've just skipped through like... <laughs> 10 years or whatever. But we've got a deep dive because I'm I'm so fascinated about what your legal life looks like today. Can you can you tell us about that? Legal life today is 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 actually wonderful. It's wonderful because legal life today is business life. Legal life today is being proactive, not reactive. It's about building a modern legal department that leverages technology and processes, not people to scale. And so my focus very much is on team building. It's on ensuring that every member of our legal team feels a strong sense of purpose, that there's a strong sense of ownership, intent, that it's a legal team that is approachable, is kind, is humble, but are stone cold enforcers when you got to be. Yes. And so any manager who really takes her job seriously will tell you that managing is tough and that it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort thinking not only about the present, but the future and ensuring that your teammates have the support they need and the clarity of purpose to really be constructive contributors, not only to your team, uh, but to the company. And every member of our team at Ironclad has an outsized impact on our company. And so a lot of my job is, is really people and team building, but it's also advising. You know, This is a company that I had the privilege of joining probably around 30 or so people, and had been around since it was just six, six people in a one-bedroom apartment. So I I've known our CEO and co-founder, Jason Baymig, for for a really long time, and I was actually one of Ironclad's first customers ever. And so being with the company in those early stages and then now being at a company that's worth all this, you know, all the fancy valuations and, you know, got so many people now, hundreds of people at the company. My A big part of my job is being a trusted advisor to our CEO. A big part of my job is being a trusted advisor to our executive team. I want our company to continue our practice of being eight steps ahead in just about every respect. You know, when I first showed up at Ironclad, I felt like we were going to have a fair amount of legal debt because I show up at companies and I build legal departments from scratch. It's kind of what I do. When I walked into Ironclad, I was blown away by the fact that this tiny little company in an apartment was already SOC compliant, already had all these processes and controls in place. And then I realized, well, at the time, 20% of the company were lawyers. Uh, And it's almost that way today. A significant portion of our company are lawyers. So it's no surprise that uh, we had things buttoned up from a compliance and security standpoint, among other things. So that's my day in the life. Yeah. 
hey, it makes sense. When we came to vendor selection for our CLM at Megaport, uh, Ironclad was on the list and we're, we're going through the demos and we asked those questions of ISO cert and SOC, et cetera, you know, thinking about information security and the kind of kind of contracts that we'd be putting through the system, employees and sensitive information, et cetera. And Ironclad was by and far the most organized and proactive and like, oh yeah, here it is. It's all good. Here's our applicability statement. It's all there and it's very comprehensive. And we we're like, really? Okay, thank you. And so it makes a difference, but you have an opportunity to build something with uh, with lawyers and, and compliance at the forefront, then that's going to play out. And I've got to ask you, you know, working, you're actually working in the industry where you are the ideal customer. Fascinating, you know, transition from, from previous in-house roles. How is that different? I'm, I'm making some assumptions, but how is it different to be in an industry, legal tech, where general counsels like yourself are the ideal customer? It's just been a lot of fun uh, to be at this company because the job, any job, anyone who joins our legal team is necessarily product counsel as well. We live in Ironclad. We use our own product. We push the, the boundaries of our product. We're a legal team that writes. We're on webinars and we talk about what we're doing to really change the game, right? What we're doing, what standards we're trying to set for other legal departments who want to modernize, right? And so being a GC at a company that has built a product that legal teams love, it, there's just never a dull moment. You're always uh, contributing. And it's not just on defending against X or drafting this policy. It's actually we're informing the product roadmap. You know, we're very close with our product team. And like you are, Mel, and like many of our other customers, our product team comes for us for advice, guidance, thoughts, ideas. And in our word, it matters. And so I'm, I'm just so proud of the partnership that we've been able to establish with our product team. It's also a unique partnership we've been able to establish with our sales team. I just did a webinar yesterday with our chief sales officer about this strong partnership that we've forged that allows us to really accelerate business, to reduce friction in the sales process, which makes selling easier and buying easier to the prospect. And so, you know, I can go on and on about how amazing it is to be at a company where we're trying to help shape the future of a profession that we also deeply care about. It's also an opportunity to really demystify the profession. You know, what we do, Mel, is usually a little mysterious to folks, pretty esoteric. We're kind of like mechanics. You take your car in, it comes back running well, and you're just happy that it was fixed, but you wouldn't know how to do it yourself. And so to that end, we're also at a company that allows us to do a lot more in the way of proactive work initiatives. And another thing that's very important to us as a company uh, is not only to do well as a company, as we've been fortunate to do, but to do good in the world. And so pro bono and giving back to the community is also a big part of being a lawyer at Ironclad. So it's, it's just a special opportunity and one that even after, I guess, almost four years, going on four years now, I'm still thrilled to wake up in the morning and uh, I would say go to work, but go to downstairs to my guest bedroom and turn on Zoom and, and report for work. <laughs> <laughs> turn on a computer. That's amazing. And that's the feeling that we should always, always be chasing in our careers. Nothing less, you know, life's too short. So I love that. It looks like a lot of fun. It looks like you have an incredible culture within the legal team and the, and the wider company, just kind of as, as a consumer, a customer and part of the community. I, I'm in awe of, of how it operates. And of course, I live in Ironclad daily for our internal matters as well. And you spoke there about the relationship with the sales organization, the commercial team. It's just fundamental to I think to all uh, I mean b2b sales in tech yes but just any company I think I've ever worked in it's the most most frequent flyer through through the department and often the most uh what's the word the, the dynamics and the personalities can be complete polar opposite and, and the way that these these we're both uh incentivized is just a fascinating dynamic so I'd love to ask you about that what do you do and how do you build that really, really effective relationship with the sales team? It all starts with people. We're, we're people first, and then we have jobs, second, third, or fourth, however you want to rank it. And if you start off with that, we're just people, and people who really depend and do best on each other and do best together, then you realize that what this is just about is relationship building. That's all it's about. 
and you can apply this to any context, maybe in life, is, you know, reaching out to someone. You know, Malcolm Gladwell has a book called How to Talk to Strangers, I believe I may have mangled the title, but making yourself approachable, reaching out proactively. One of our four values at Ironclad is empathy. Finding yourself in a position to walk a block in someone else's shoes. Understanding what is it that drives you, account executive, peer? What is it on the sales team that you celebrate? What are some of your pain points? How have you worked with legal in the past? How would you like to work with legal in a perfect world? What kind of shared goals and responsibilities can we establish? How can we accelerate the development of trust, which usually takes a long time? How can we put that on the fast track and learn to trust each other earlier in the process rather than later? How can we get a better understanding for what each of us has to do every day and what our ultimate North Star is? And how can we take those and merge those goals into one so that we can work side by side and get the job done together. It's really important to do that and there's so many ways to do it in person, remotely, uh, but it's really about having a genuine interest in another person who is having a different experience than you're having. I think that's where it starts because when you build up that goodwill, when you build up that trust, it really comes to play in crunch time. And that's what it's about, whether it's the end of your month, whether it's the end of your quarter, whether it's the end of your fiscal year. You know, we're very fortunate at Ironclad to have a lot of sales activity every day and an insane amount at the end of each month and each quarter. So the drum beat is just on all the time. And unless we're walking in sync, things can fall apart, things can get pushed, trust could be compromised, and then you got a lot of work to do to build it back up. So that's not specific advice, Mel, but I think at the end of the day, you treat these relationships with your colleagues like you would treat any other relationship. It's really about people and building trust. I love it. And empathy. You're, you're absolutely right. The oftentimes that friction between a sales and a legal team can be often because of the previous experiences. And, and I like to get on the front foot with our new sales staff and we do one on one induction and we like get in there and like, hi, I'm legal and you're going to love me. <laughs> Here's why. Yeah. And it, it's about rewriting the myths of like, look, you may not have had a great time at your previous role, uh, but forget everything you know about in-house legal because we're starting from scratch and we have tools like ironclad and we also have processes and the people that are, have the cultural fit to to ultimately get the deals done because let's not forget that without the sales team we don't have jobs <laughs> so. oh that's right that's right look i like to say when I, I spend a fair amount of time well i spend a lot of time with our chief sales officer and i spend a fair amount of time before our sales team uh usually in our enablement sessions that we have on a weekly basis and, you know, I, I like to highlight the lexical definition of a partnership, which I can't quote it, but it's essentially about one party doing something and another party doing something the other can't do. And you come together and you're stronger uh, together. It's a two-way street the partnership is. You know, look, our legal department's in-house, you know, we are, you know, we're a shared resource. We're one of those departments where our client base spans across the company. And so it's important for folks to be able to understand that even though a lot of the activity is in sales, we've got a lot of other clientele to serve as well and other issues that are popping up that aren't on the go-to-market side. And so being able to show up is a big deal, Mel, as you've said. Being able to be in front of the team, to be listening, we have members of our team joining all the forecast calls. Our CSO and I present quite a bit in front of the company. We, I, we make sure that we establish, we don't call it an SLA mail, we actually call it a service level commitment, an SLC. We have a strong SLC that we establish with our sales team that we promise to turn contracts within a certain period of time. And we report every week out, every week we report out, we hit it X percent of the time, which is 100. So you debunk that myth that legal is a bottleneck, that we're slowing things down because we're adhering to the commitment we made to you all. And of course, as you know, Mel, with Ironclad and our dashboard that's ever evolving and becoming more complex, you can actually see the amount of time it's spent with legal versus compliance, which is probably also legal, which is you know CFO's office, product, who is holding it, counterparty? And so when you have that visibility, yes. right? Yes. People are like, wow, you all are on it and you're for us and we trust you and we're on the same team. And that allows you to say, hey, team, we're actually going to institute a new policy. We're not going to redline any contract under X amount on an annual basis. Sales freaks out. Well, wait a minute. What? But then they have faith and confidence in you and the partnership and relationship you've established. So they trust you. And then we're able to prove through data that it only helps them accelerate their deals. And now everyone wants to not negotiate 
our contracts, which is kind of cool. So it, it's an important relationship, Mel, and we can all we can all work hard on making it better. We are at Ironclad every day. Love it. You've you've got so many practical tips in there, and I, I echo the sentiment around using the data to tell the story. What's actually going on here with the contract and uh, setting that that commitment to to the partnership and showing up and reporting on that. That's that's fantastic, Chris. I'm, I'm going to throw a, a left field one. When we look at legal tech as an industry and, and Ironclad very much at the forefront there, mm-hmm. what is one myth about legal tech that you want to debunk? Well, I'd like to f- reframe it a bit. I, I, I would like to kind of go on record here and say that Ironclad is not a legal tech company. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're, we're, we're actually not a legal tech company. We're a business-to-business software-as-a-service company that's built technology that is used by every persona in every corner of every company type. But it is a company, our mission at Ironclad that we repeat every Monday is our mission is to power the world's contracts with a product that legal teams love because we believe that our teams, Mel, have been forgotten. We've been left behind. We haven't been afforded the benefit of cutting edge technology, Salesforce for sales, marketing gets Marketo, you know, you know, talent gets lever. Everyone's had this SaaS built for them, but legal was left behind. And so we are a company that is a business-to-business software company that is building a product that legal teams love, but that is being leveraged by leaders in every other department as well. Now that said, in terms of legal technology or technology that serves the department or others that's coming out of legal, however we want to cut it, here's the problem that we've faced, just to be candid with you. You know, when we first kind of entered this market and started growing, we were learning from customers who were signing on that they had very poor experiences with other service providers. And I'd like to highlight something that one of our board members said one time that's resonated with all of us at the company that we continue to repeat almost two years later. Optimize for trust. Around every corner at Ironclad, whether we're working on teams, whether we're a company working with a prospect, we're always trying to optimize for trust. And so at Ironclad, to a fault, we are very clear about what we can and can't provide. And we also highlight the fact that we iterate and that we innovate faster than any other company out there. But the headwinds we've run into are that people have been burned before. And so they're skeptical. And who's skeptical, by the way, Mel? Because who's buying the software nine times out of ten? Us. We're lawyers. Oh, my gosh. Right? It's like you're already skeptical. Like, wait, what? And you buy it and you go out on a limb and you use your your goodwill chips to get the money to procure the software that you're going to roll out and make everyone's life easier. And then you get the money and then you can't roll it out and you can't implement it and it takes forever and it's costly and it's not working as promised. And then people look at you like, what's your problem? And, you know, we as as in-house counsel, we don't have a lot of opportunities to make these proactive moves. We're usually defending we're being reactive and that one opportunity we can bring to the fore some technology that's going to help all of the business and it doesn't go well, you're kind of left and understandably so with a bad taste in your mouth. So I think what I would say is if there's a myth in legal tech, it's that it just doesn't work as promised, particularly CLM. And what I would encourage people to do is, is understand that that's not the case, that there are vendors out there that do provide services as promised and do have strong integrity. And what's been exciting about our field or our market is that there's more and more market entrants who who are helping us modernize legal teams, which is our collective mission. So, So that's what I would say, Mel. I'd say that there is technology out there that works and the best way to select it is not to turn to the vendor and ask the vendor for the well curated list of customers who can speak nicely about the product. Mel, you have a community here There are communities all over the place. Talk to the community and figure out what the best solution is for you because there are solutions out there and we should all be excited about that. Absolutely. Well said. And as I say, whenever I'm recommending Ironclad anecdotally to to a colleague or a peer, I I really just boils down to it does what it says on the box and that's it (laughs) because it does. (laughs) Right, right. That's right. Chris, we're coming to the top of our hour and I'm so grateful to have had this time with you. I have one last question. I want to ask what qualities you think make a great in-house lawyer? It's a good question. I have my opinion on it and it's very much this. You know, at least in the United States, we see instances in the media of people abusing their power. And 
it can leave you a little wary of uh, of folks in power sometimes. And I think, you know, as attorneys, we have power. And we have a lot of it. And my father always used to say, you know, the toughest guy doesn't have to act tough, right? What he meant was, in his own way, is that if you know you're good, you don't have to tell people about it. If you know you're powerful, you don't have to demonstrate it all the time. And so I like legal team members who are kind, who are respectful, who are understanding, who are patient, who are calm, even when they're under attack, and who don't flex when they don't need to flex. Humble, because we do have great power, and we are here to advise and to give guidance and to not say no, but to find ways around. But in those rare occasions when you have to stand up and put your foot down and say, hey, y'all, this is just not good for the business, you know, you exercise that power, but only when it's necessary. And so I, I like that combination, and that's how we built our legal team at Ironclad, which is a team I'm so, so very proud of. It is literally one of the key reasons I'm so excited every day to go to Zoom is <laughs> because I get to, I get to, to hang out uh, with our legal team members. So those are qualities that, that I love. And I also love people who, who, who bet on themselves, like we were talking about earlier, who take calculated risks and who know that they're not always going to succeed but are going to put themselves out there and give it their best shot. And so I appreciate folks who exhibit those qualities and that type of experience. Amazing. Beautifully said, my friend. And just having known you in the community, spending this time together, I completely see that, that you know, you're practicing what you preach. You do live by those values. And uh, I'm infinitely grateful for having had some time to chat and share your career journey and we've just i feel like we just touched the surface but <laughs> nonetheless thank you for your time chris you you have an incredible team and an incredible product that helps make other legal teams lives so much easier so just a personal a personal uh, vote of thanks from from the megaport legal team we love Ironclad. and we love the emojis the emojis are fun so thank you <laughs> enjoy your weekend Mel, thank you uh, so much for having me on. This has been just quite, quite the privilege. I really appreciate the invitation and we're, we're grateful to be partnering with you all over at Ironclad. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mel. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this show. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you're listening from. To learn more about in-house practice, follow me on LinkedIn and Instagram.